This is firefighter Raphael Poirier for Firehouse Subs, introducing the new Firehouse Pub Steak Sub with savory steak, crispy fried onions, and our rich Belgian beer cheese sauce. On tap for a limited time. Order yours at firehousesubs.com today. Remember, a portion of every sub you buy helps provide life-saving equipment for first responders. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Limited time only, plus tax. Participating locations. Firehouse Subs will donate a minimum of $1 million in 2018 to the Firehouse Subs Public Safety Foundation by donating 0.13% of every purchase. The simple truth is that children kill. Of course, accidents do happen, but kids have proven themselves to be undoubtedly capable of cold-blooded, premeditated murders that they had every opportunity to avoid committing, but engage in nonetheless. Children have killed their parents, neighbors, classmates, and strangers. Kids have murdered their best friends, teachers, grandmas, and even their own babies. Children have killed alone and in groups, with other kids and sometimes with adults too. Who can even begin to speculate as to how people can justify resorting to murder? Not us. This show focuses on the facts, details, and circumstances which give rise to murderous minors, killer kids. Episode number two, The Wrestling Defense. It's July 28th, 1999, and bubbly, vivacious six-year-old Tiffany Eunuch is being looked after by her mother's friend, a Florida state trooper. Tiffany is the only child of Deweese Eunuch Paul, and the pair had recently settled in the Fort Lauderdale, Florida area. It is here that she became friendly with an old acquaintance, Kathleen Grosset-Tate, and the two begin watching each other's kids while the other work. Considering that they are both single mothers, sharing childcare seemed like a blessing, especially because Kathleen worked the graveyard shift. Kathleen Grosset-Tate was a member of the United States Armed Forces, as was her son's father, whom she divorced when their child was one. That child, Lionel Tate, was forced to endure prolonged periods of separation from his mother, all throughout his early childhood years, leaving him with deep psychological scars and frustration. Teachers back to kindergarten stated when interviewed that they expected Lionel to grow up encountering behavioral and disciplinary issues. However, no one could ever begin to foresee the severity of what would occur within a few short years. They say he was starved for attention and tried too hard to impress others through a disruptive attitude. He was known to quietly initiate confrontations and taunt classmates using aggressive bully behavior. It was reported that he repeatedly stole from classmates and the other children regularly refused to sit by him. When Lionel is about nine years old, he moves from Florida to Mississippi for a year or so to live with his father while his mother trains for and completes the process of becoming a Florida state trooper. He returns to a home where his mother works long hours with little time left over to spend with him. Upon his return to Florida, he is a much larger, much more aggressive version of the 11-year-old he was when he had left the previous year. By 1999, Lionel is a 12-year-old loner and begins spending considerable time with Tiffany Eunuch and her mother, Deweese, 
being looked after by them, but also helping his mom babysit Tiffany. Now an older elementary school student, Lionel's behavior was described as aggressive. He was labeled an instigator. When confronted with his inappropriate behavior, Lionel routinely deflected blame toward others and Kathleen Grosset-Tate always took his side. In response to disciplinary action at school, his mother would appear in her state trooper's uniform, armed, and engage in confrontations with teachers in the halls in full view of students and other spectators. On the evening of July 28, 1999, Tiffany is at the Tate's condo being babysat while her mom is at work. Around 7.30 p.m., Kathleen makes dinner for the kids and goes upstairs to rest before reporting to her graveyard shift as a Florida State Trooper. At around 11 p.m., Lionel comes upstairs to tell his mom that his little friend Tiffany wasn't breathing. According to her 911 call, Kathleen Grosset-Tate states that she hadn't checked on the kids for about three hours. She goes on to say that she did get up and tell the kids to quiet down once, but she didn't think it was necessary to go down and see what they were doing. What she describes hearing was some kind of moaning. However, she didn't classify the noises to investigators as crying or as screaming. Loving, boisterous six-year-old Tiffany would later be pronounced dead at the hospital. Investigators would say that no foul play was suspected. At first glance, it appeared to be either some kind of choking accident or perhaps natural causes. The medical examiner concluded that little Tiffany's 48-pound body had sustained more than 35 blunt force trauma injuries, including a crushed skull, brain contusions, broken ribs, and a shredded liver. Injuries so severe as to be consistent with a fall from a second to third story window. The initial questioning by police took place at the Tate condo on the night of the crime. No implausible explanations were noted and foul play was not yet suspected prior to the coroner's findings. Once the autopsy report was complete, however, investigators immediately ruled Tiffany's death a homicide. Keeping in mind the babysitter's young yet large son, they seek out Lionel Tate and find him at the home of Tiffany's soon-to-be stepfather. He allows Lionel to leave with the police, unaccompanied by any legal guardian, with no one being required to give consent for interrogation in 1999, Florida. Lionel states that he and Tiffany were playing tag after dinner when 178-pound Lionel grabbed her from behind and squeezed. Investigators now begin to record the interview. Tiny, 48-pound Tiffany grabs the side of her body consistent with her liver and cries out. She then hits her leg on the metal stairs, darting to the bathroom, where she vomits. Lionel Tate further states that, upon returning from the bathroom, Tiffany says she is tired, lays down on the couch, and goes to sleep. Her head was in a position which Lionel thought looked uncomfortable, so 
Per his recorded statement, he straightens her head. But when he removes his hand, her head hits the coffee table, prompting her to scream out once more. Evidently, this is the commotion reported by Kathleen Grosset Tate, which resulted in her hollering down for the kids to be quiet but not going down to check on them. Lionel reported to her that Tiffany was making baby noises in her sleep. Kathleen then threatened to spank Tiffany if she didn't stop. The noises ceased. At some point after this occurs, Lionel says he simply notices Tiffany isn't breathing, leading him to alert his mother. He tells investigators that he did not tell his mother about playing tag, squeezing Tiffany, her banging her leg, the vomiting, or her hitting her head on the table. He only reports to his mother that Tiffany isn't breathing and she calls 911. Based on this interview, the day after Tiffany's tragic death and just after they have reviewed the coroner's report, law enforcement determined that 12-year-old Lionel Tate's deliberate actions caused six-year-old Tiffany Eunuch's fatal injuries and ultimately her untimely death. The public was in an uproar. Governor Jeb Bush and the Reverend Al Sharpton made statements. Even the Pope and the U.N. had something to say. With the okay of Tiffany's mother, Prosecutor Padowitz carefully prepared a plea offer that he thought seemed more than fair and just given the circumstances. Three years in juvenile prison. Ultimately, it was Kathleen Grosset Tate's final decision. Shockingly, she rejected the offer, along with any implication that her son was guilty. She contended that he was completely innocent, regardless of the evidence which would be presented at trial or his own descriptions of violence against his playmate. The prosecution gave the Tates multiple opportunities to take this plea, which they steadfastly refused, and the case went to trial. During the months between indictment and the beginning of the trial, Prosecutor Padowitz kept offering the plea, which they never accepted. During pretrial motions, the judge would end up severely limiting the amount of pro-wrestling-related conjecture that could be presented to the jury, stating a lack of generally accepted standard for the use of this defense. How effective could the defense possibly be now? Jim Lewis would end up being allowed to show just two clips depicting pro-wrestling moves similar to those which Lionel stated he had used on Tiffany. The defense also goes on to call an expert witness and forensic pathologist, who states that Tiffany's horrible injuries could indeed have been caused by the wrestling moves Lionel said they had mimicked. However, on cross-examination, he finds it necessary to admit that those injuries caused to Tiffany could not have been unintentional or accidental in any way. They would have had to have been inflicted on purpose. When the defense calls Lionel's mother Kathleen to the stand, her demeanor and description of her behavior on the night of the crime do little to draw sympathy from the jury for her child. The prosecution had actually presented their evidence first, such as the autopsy results and the speculative evidence regarding the crush Lionel may have had on Tiffany's mom. 
Even further damaging testimony came from a court-appointed psychologist who had conducted three interviews with Lionel following his arrest. Interestingly, he noted that, prior to the retention of Jim Lewis as his defense attorney, Lionel never mentioned wrestling, play fighting, roughhousing, or the WWF in any capacity whatsoever. He simply told him that they were playing, one of them fell, and the other tripped over them. Only after the notion that the wrestling defense was to be used was made public did Lionel begin to describe it to the psychologist. He was particular to note that Lionel had full comprehension that what he saw on television wrestling was fake, and that it performed in real life, people would be seriously injured. The testimony of Tiffany's mother, DeWeese, included the recollection that when she had told Lionel that Tiffany had died, he rolled his eyes and shrugged. She also contended that the day after Tiffany's death, Lionel had asked if he could move in with her and have Tiffany's toys. However, she does testify that the two kids were friends and had an affection for one another. In reality, the prosecution had been first to submit portions of the defense's own video, the one in which Lionel acted out the moves he had allegedly performed on his tiny playmate. The prosecution wanted to highlight that the amount of force necessary to injure little Tiffany so severely could not have possibly been inflicted by what was shown on the video. Even before the defense had a chance to try and convince the jury that this was a possibility, the prosecution did their best to discredit the theory. Lionel Tate was convicted on the charge of first-degree murder in January 2001. In March, he received the sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole. Had his mother accepted the plea deal which had been offered to them so many times before trial, he would by now be finishing up his three-year sentence with just 10 years of probation required after. Instead, he was looking at a life sentence at the age of 14 with no possibility of parole. At sentencing, both the defense and the prosecution appealed to the judge for a reduction in charge so a lesser sentence could be imposed. However, Judge Joel Lazarus described 12-year-old Lionel's actions against innocent Tiffany as cold, callous, and indescribably cruel, and expounded that Tate's guilt was clear, obvious, and indisputable. There would be no reduction in charge, and a life-without-parole sentence would be historically imposed. In 2003, on appeal, Lionel's life sentence was overturned on the grounds that no mental competency hearing had been performed in preparation for trial. He was granted a new trial, but instead, Prosecutor Padowitz found it just and lawful to reoffer the same second-degree murder plea deal that Lionel's mother had rejected many times before. In order to accept the plea, Lionel had to admit guilt, which he did, pleading guilty to second-degree murder for the death of his six-year-old friend Tiffany Eunuch. In his plea, he reverts back to a pre-defense counsel version of the events of that night. He states that, while they were playing, he stormed down the stairs and landed on Tiffany. You may recall that at that time Tiffany weighed a slight 48 pounds and Lionel 178, standing almost six feet tall. 
The January 2003 plea saw Lionel receive time served for the years he had already been incarcerated. He left the juvenile prison at Okeechobee with an ankle bracelet and immediately began serving one-year house arrest. He was also required to complete 10 years of probation along with 1,000 hours community service and undergo counseling for anger and grief. In September 2004, Lionel was found to be in possession of a knife in the middle of the night, violating both curfew and the terms of his release. As a result, his probation was extended to 15 years, according to the New York Times. Lionel was living with a different family at this time, and they requested he be removed from their care, citing the frequency of visits by probation as overwhelming. He went back to live with his mother, Kathleen, now as a 17-year-old young man. Approximately nine months later, in May 2005, a now 18-year-old Lionel Tate was arrested for attempting to rob a pizza delivery man at gunpoint at an apartment complex in Pembroke Pines, Florida. Fingerprints on evidence at the scene, along with incriminating texts and eyewitness identification, made the case against him substantial. Jim Lewis, once again his attorney, believed that Lionel was simply an easy target, although he was identified by both the victim and the resident of the apartment where the robbery occurred. In December 2005, the next hearing in this case was postponed for a psychiatric evaluation when Lionel alerted the court that he was suicidal and hearing voices. Within a few weeks, a brain scan as well as a psychiatric evaluation had been concluded and competence was ruled. Defense lawyers even admitted that their now-adult client had lied about his psychological issues in an effort to delay the hearing and, by extension, the possibility that he may have to return to prison for life. In March 2006, Lionel Tate pled guilty to robbing the pizza delivery man, along with violation of probation, although he did attempt to withdraw these pleas before sentencing. The maximum sentence for both combined would have been 30 years in prison. Ultimately, Judge Lazarus leveled a sentence of 30 years in just the probation violation case alone and set a trial date on the armed robbery case. Lionel would eventually have a 10-year sentence added to be served concurrently after accepting a plea and avoiding a jury trial that would have carried yet another possible life sentence in prison. In the fall of 2011, Reporter Michelle Gillen interviewed a then 24-year-old Lionel Tate from within the walls of the Swanee Correctional Institution in Florida. They had been corresponding over the previous year, a year which had seen Lionel spend time in solitary confinement at his previous prison, a year which he says also included a suicide attempt and that culminated in his transferring facilities. Lionel contends that he feels bad about what happened, both back at the time of Tiffany's murder as well as when this interview is being conducted. He shared a few fond memories of their friendship and offered his desire to be forgiven by her mom. He concludes the interview with his final explanation for what happened in July 1999. 
We were playing, and I guess I was rough, and she passed away. This was the most complete explanation from Lionel Tate regarding the unnecessary, brutal beating of exuberant six-year-old Tiffany, his friend and playmate. More than a decade removed from his senseless crime, that was the totality of his recollection of the events of July 28, 1999. Lionel Tate is currently 30 years old and housed at Everglades Correctional Institution in Miami, Florida. With his concurrent 30-plus-10 year sentences for probation violation and armed burglary slated to end with his release on September 16, 2030. The tragic death of Tiffany Eunuch and the trial of Lionel Tate created widespread ripples throughout the entirety of the criminal justice system in this country. As mentioned earlier, Tate was the youngest juvenile ever to receive a life without parole sentence. We must remember that although the grand jury indicted Lionel on first-degree murder charges, they most certainly had the chance to indict him on a lesser charge, taking mandatory life off the table. However, they did not. In 2016, a panel of seven convened at the Broward County Crime Commission's Conference on Juvenile and Adolescent Violence which included the prosecutor in the Tate case, Ken Padowitz, Lionel's original defense attorney, Jim Lewis, along with the presiding judge, Joel Lazarus. All three have had long-lasting regrets regarding this case. Upon reflection, defense attorney Jim Lewis regrets becoming too close to his client admittedly taking on a more fatherly role since he felt Lionel had never had one. The prosecutor regrets leaving it all up to the grand jury. Judge Lazarus regrets not dealing with the issues of competency head-on from the beginning. The panel feels as though Tate's abnormally early institutionalization led him to dive deeper toward more run-ins with law enforcement as he grew older. They also stated that the Florida justice system simply was not equipped at that time to handle such a violent crime perpetrated by a child. They do, however, recognize that this case did have an impact on legislation nationwide, leading to punishments and rehabilitation that are considered to be more age-appropriate. At trial, defense attorney Jim Lewis specifically stated that shows such as the UPN's WWE Smackdown were influencing factors in Tiffany Eunuch's death. The following is the WWE's statement, which was released in response to the defense's allegations and Lionel Tate's verdict and trial. We at the WWF believe that the verdict and the public statements made by individual jurors unanimously support our position that professional wrestling should have never been involved in this case. Sadly, an innocent little girl has died. Lionel Tate, by his own actions and the actions and decisions of his mother and defense attorney, have changed his life forever. The WWF has stated consistently that the suggestion that wrestling had anything to do with Lionel Tate's murderous acts was a contrived hoax. 
The jury easily and quickly repudiated the defense counsel's claim that pro-wrestling was somehow to blame for the intentional homicide, and individual jurors have reiterated this in public comments. The evidence proved, and the jury found, that this was death caused not by mimicking wrestling moves, but rather by deliberate, prolonged, and savage beating. Shockingly, the senseless murder of Tiffany would not be the only time that professional wrestling moves would be blamed for the violent actions of a teenage boy. Tragically, in Terrytown, Louisiana, in June 2013, five-year-old Villode Lewis died while being babysat by her 13-year-old half-brother, Armstrong Devalon. Their mother went to the store, leaving the little five-year-old in the care of her older half-sibling. By the time she returned home from running errands, paramedics had responded to Armstrong's 911 call stating that he had found his little sister on the bathroom floor. During the follow-up investigation, authorities discovered that Armstrong was babysitting, making him their now primary focus. Armstrong had told them that his sister had complained of a stomach ache and went upstairs to the bathroom so she could brush her teeth. More than 30 minutes elapsed, and he realized she had not returned. He went to check on her and found her laying in pain on the bathroom floor. Armstrong then told police that he walked his little sister to the couch where she lay down. This is technically where she was when he noticed she wasn't breathing and called 911. Dispatchers had him initiate CPR and paramedics arrived, followed by the kid's mother. Tiny, precious Velode was soon pronounced dead at the hospital. On the day of the crime, her little body showed no outward signs of trauma, and her death was ruled undetermined. It wasn't until the following day, during the second interrogation session with police, that Armstrong admitted that he used so-called professionally wrestling moves on Velode that they had seen on TV. It wasn't until the following day, during the second interrogation session with police, that Armstrong admitted that he had used so-called pro-wrestling moves on Velode that they had seen on TV. He graphically described picking her up, slamming her on the bed, dropping elbows on her, punching her in the stomach 15 to 20 times, performing violent moves on her such as the John Cena slam, and jumping on her for an additional two to three minutes after she told him he was hurting her. He was interrupted only by a phone call from their mother. Armstrong DeVallon was born in Haiti. His mother left their native country when he was four years old, emigrating to the U.S. and leaving Armstrong to live with his father until the age of 10. Following the devastating earthquake in 2010, Armstrong emigrated to the U.S. alone under the sponsorship of Vilger Lewis, his new stepfather, who was a U.S. citizen, and father to his little sister, Velode. Like Lionel Tate, Armstrong spent considerable parts of his childhood separated from the love, care, comfort, and protection of his mother. 
likely suffering great trauma during the horrors of a devastating natural disaster. Following Armstrong's charges in Velode's death, her father, Vilger Lewis, would state that should Armstrong be sentenced to probation, he would not be allowed to return to their home and went so far as to threaten to revoke his sponsorship, leaving Armstrong subject to deportation back in Haiti. He called him disrespectful. Ultimately, these issues were irrelevant as Armstrong de Vallon was sentenced to three years in juvenile prison for negligent homicide. The judge was adamant in his belief that Armstrong had to have known that he was hurting his little sister. Back on the day following Velode's murder, detectives interviewing Armstrong noted that, although he admitted to knowing that the wrestling moves he saw on TV were fake, he smiled and seemed to enjoy describing performing moves such as the Mark Henry slam on his little sister, even with the knowledge that he ultimately beat her to death. According to readily available information on the Internet, Armstrong de Vallon would have been eligible for release from juvenile prison last year, 2016. In response to the news of their potential blame in the heartbreaking death of five-year-old Villaud Lewis, in June 2013, the WWE states that her death was a tragedy and our condolences go out to her family. WWE urges restraint in reporting this unfortunate incident as if it were the result of a WWE wrestling move. As in similar cases, criminal intent to harm and a lack of parental supervision have been the factors resulting in a tragic death. Authorities have already charged the accused with second-degree murder and determined that this was not an accidental death due to a wrestling move. Upon sentencing, the WWE released this statement. The death of Volod Lewis is a tragedy, and we express our condolences. WWE supports Judge Jansen's summation that the 13-year-old boy absolutely knew that he was hurting his 5-year-old little sister. Therefore, it is illogical to conclude that the brutal and untimely fatal beating of 5-year-old little Volod by a teenager could be confused with imitation of WWE moves seen on TV. This concludes episode number two, The Wrestling Defense. Please join us next week for episode number three, Yellow Ribbons for Maddie, on Murderous Minors, Killer Kids. Did you hear the news? MetroPCS is now Metro by T-Mobile. Now you get new plans with unlimited high-speed data all month long, all on the T-Mobile network. Check out the new Metro by T-Mobile today and discover the smarter way to get unlimited. Metro by T-Mobile. That's genius.
During congestion, the fraction of customers using greater than 35 gigs per month may notice reduced speeds. And Metro customers may notice reduced speeds versus some T-Mobile customers. Video streams at 4DP. Coverage not available in some areas. See store for details and terms and conditions.